today's speaker. Um, there are people in TV news who believe it's on par with what the Dalai Lama does, um, but they're only in TV news. Uh, it's really an honor to be here. It's really exciting, and it is, uh, as mentioned, a packed house. So thank you for being here. Uh, I'm speaking on the Russia probe, and I want to begin with a premise and then talk about some theories of the case, as lawyers say. My premise would be, while important, the investigation into Russian meddling is not a legitimate outlet for dissatisfaction or even the potential removal of a deeply unpopular president who flagrantly divides and demeans our politics. There are political remedies to those problems. Uh, and however slow and even in our system at times undemocratic the political system is, that is the place for people who feel that way to deal with that. What we're looking at in the criminal investigation headed by Special Counsel Mueller is a legal process with the full powers arrayed in our system of investigation, of arrest, of detention, of prison. Our system also even includes the ultimate capital punishment, a controversial part of the system. All of those powers are to be used only in pursuit of legal or criminal ends as determined by nonpartisan prosecutors. Uh, so while the political background can't be divorced from this, indeed, it's an investigation in part into potentially the meddling in or shaping the outcome of an election, which does not mean there is not a political backdrop, but it does mean the investigators involved, and I would argue uh, any honest citizen seeking to engage it, should be looking only at it as a legal process towards justice and not a political process to achieve potentially in court what is not otherwise achievable politically. The reason for the probe's significance beyond its drama, and as someone who's worked in court and now on TV, drama matters. I mean, jurors care about drama. We all respond to drama, and this is a very dramatic case. But beyond the drama, I think the obvious substantive import is we already have evidence from our intelligence services that a foreign adversarial country engaged to hinder one side, to help another side, to apparently make contact through surrogates to directly talk and help the other side, to shape the information, content, or propaganda that reaches Americans, and to covertly impact the election systems in several key states. I mean, this is a whopper. And we are in the early stages because everything I just said was leaked within a year. Uh, any knowledge of past investigations, as, as I'm sure this audience has, will tell you, well, the whole story is not revealed from leaks in the first year. Uh, we don't know where it ends. We do know more information will out. And so the highest-minded reason to not only focus on the probe and journalists to work alongside it, essentially, because we report on what it's doing, but we also report on what we're finding, and then sometimes that makes its way back into the probe, is to establish what happened, who's responsible, and hopefully, from an American point of view, to deter or prevent future attacks. If foreign countries can regularly or even easily impact or tip our elections, 
That's not a bug in our democracy. That's our democracy. And that's its fate and future. Uh, so it's extraordinarily serious in, in that sense. Uh, with that in mind, as, a, as sort of setting the table, I want to explore four theories of the case. Um, the most common question I get is, how is this going to end? Or some variation thereof. Uh, and Yogi Berra famously said, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, I agree with that. It's also not, it's not my core competence at any number of the, the couple of careers I've, I've dabbled in. So I can't predict what's going to happen. Um, but lawyers do love precedence. A precedent in life is just something that happened. In law, it's something that happened which provides authority or legitimacy to doing it again. Uh, and so I'm going to share four sort of precedents, four theories of the case, uh, some of which I'm sure you're familiar with, but I'm putting them in the context of four ways this can end. Uh, and naturally, you know, in our shows, we're always like, hey, you got to stay tuned for this next thing, you know, when we do that. <laughs> Rachel's like really good at it. You'll be like, is this a segment? And you're like, oh, no, wait, this is a tease to the next segment. Uh, in that fine spirit, I will start low and go up the chain. The first theory of the case is you have smoke, you have fire, but the fire is somewhere else. So a crime did occur, and there's evidence of it, but the authorities don't find that the people under investigation, or in the sense of jurisdiction, people in America, are actually responsible for that crime. This is the best theory of the case for the Trump campaign. If you're making a defense for them, it's this bad stuff happened, we didn't do it, move on. And by the way, that's a better defense than the argument you sometimes hear, which is this bad stuff didn't happen, maybe Russia didn't do it, maybe it was a 500-pound guy in his basement. <laughs> Denying that the criminal conduct and espionage even occurred actually makes you look guilty because it's a wildly counterfactual claim. But if you're lawyering it, and I've spoken on and off the record to, to Donald Trump's current lawyers, they're not, as a legal argument, trying to own the denial of everything that happened. They are making a much more narrow argument that may be legally profitable. So in this scenario, you have Russia's actions essentially accounted for, and potentially other actors who may have helped them accounted for, whether they're mercenary hackers or some other individual got caught up in it, and the defense is, that's the crime, that's the, the fire, but we didn't do it. And the precedent for this one that I would point to is actually my only case out of these four that involves a current player uh, in this issue, Carter Page, who's a former foreign policy advisor to Donald Trump. A few years ago, the New York federal prosecutor, who is, I'm sure by now familiar to most of you, Pre Perara, who was fired by Donald Trump at the time, was pursuing a case that did not get much national attention uh, against individuals, Russian nationals, who said they were bankers in New York, but who U.S. authorities and Preparar's office determined were actually spies. And they were prosecuted as spies. And they were convicted as spies. And within that case, the prosecutors, at the time anonymously, but we now know listed Carter Page, not as a collaborator, not as part of the conspiracy, but they listed him in a legal term of art as, quote, male one, which literally, like it sounds, means you're some dude, you're a guy that was nearby. 
you're not a co-conspirator, you're certainly not a defendant, you're male one. And they wrote within their indictment here, there was, quote, attempted use of Page as an intelligence source for Russia. Attempted use of, right? Some of them want to use you, some of them want to get used by you. <laughs> for any of our, our fans out there. This is Russians, spies, convicted spies, according to the United States, using Page. And the FBI wasn't on Page's side. They weren't trying to come up with an excuse for him. They investigated it. They looked at it. They had a tremendous surveillance in that case, by the way, because it was an espionage case that then looked at also domestic issues. And they determined he was just male one. So under this theory of the case, you have the idea that even if there's contact and even if they tried to use you, if you were just getting used, that makes you something in between potentially a victim or someone who should have known better, right? Maybe you made bad decisions. Doesn't mean that you're a criminal co-conspirator. And that's a first theory of the case. And I was looking for a good example because espionage cases are actually hard, they're hard to get because a lot of them we don't hear about or they're written in very opaque ways. This is one that because of the later revelations we know more about and happens to involve Page. That's the best theory of the case you can make, and it's the one you may hear more about, and it's also one that, if you keep an open mind, may be the facts, may be what relevant information provides, or at least what is provable in court, which is what Bob Mueller's standard is, not what sounds bad, not what looks bad, but what he can really prove with evidence. Second theory of a case is where you expose part of a conspiracy, but it doesn't make it all the way up to the top of the organization. Uh, I would point to Iran-Contra, something that I would guess most people here live through. Uh, you guys know the term mansplaining, <laughs> right? This is like age-splaining. I'm like, let me tell you, there was this guy, Ronald Reagan, let me tell you about it. Uh, so you remember, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on Iran-Contra, uh, but I will speak to the legal proceedings because they are relevant. Obviously, there was evidence of this very convoluted plot uh, to do hostages for arms. There were aspects of it that, based on the public evidence, involved criminal activity. People were indicted. Uh, National Security Poindexter and Ollie North were convicted, but both had their convictions overturned. Again, not because there was some special rigged system to help them, but because judges, looking at the facts, in Ollie North's case, the weird immunity deal, uh, decided that these convictions couldn't stand, and relevant to recent news, uh, Bush Sr. also pardoned several other people. Casper Weinberger was pardoned before his trial. Uh, is there a precedent for that? You betcha. And while the investigations on the one hand are a story of the system working up to a point, because the congressional committees, the Tower Commission, and the special prosecutor all taught us things and exposed information, it was only part of a conspiracy uh, that was exposed. And again, I don't have to age explain to you, there are a lot of people who believe, based on what we know about Iran and Contra, that maybe it didn't stop like right here. Maybe given what was going on, it went higher. Uh, Weinberger's notes and others had direct suggestion that the vice president, the president had knowledge. But as a legal matter, if we're talking about theories of the case, that's a theory of the case where there are indictments, there is some measure of accountability. Um, you could argue there's some level of deterrence and that if you were a national security advisor, a senior official, and the day after this all went down, 
I mean, when the investigations closed, someone said, hey, I want to do this special deal, I'll protect you. You might look at it and go, this doesn't look like a great deal for those people, uh, even if the measure of justice was not complete. And that would be a theory of the case where you have part of the conspiracy exposed. Uh, I'm moving to my third theory, which tells you we're all already halfway done, and then we'll do Q&A, which I'm told is the most interesting part of today. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. It was like a backhanded compliment to the audience they gave me to, for you when I got here. <laughs> uh, third theory of the case is a legal process that digs in, that exposes the bottom or middle of the conspiracy, and then through that exposure and process, then reaches the top. And for that, I would step outside of government and politics and look to the Enron case. Uh, Enron was once one of the largest companies in the United States. I was looking up for this, for this talk. Uh, they had $101 billion in revenue in 2000. Just massive. The bankruptcy was the largest bankruptcy in American history, and 20,000 people lost their jobs, and obviously a lot of them were not involved in the conspiracy at the top, by definition, uh, and as the investigations showed. Um, and this was a fall that was not only, of course, about the legal system being prosecution. It was a, it was a fraud. It was like, take the Madoff Ponzi scheme, but then like throw in like the worst conspiracies about Exxon, and then a little bit of accounting fraud, and it was going to run out of money. So it's also a situation where there's an external reality check separate from whatever the legal process is doing, which I think is important to keep in mind because that may be different uh, from the current situation. Um, but as a theory of the case, you had the CEO, the next CEO, the COO, the accounting officer, I mean the entire management of the company, according to investigators, in on this. And because it was a complex conspiracy, and this is a difference from, say, spontaneous crimes or crimes of passion or other crimes we, we see and study and report on, because it was a complex conspiracy from the start, there was great measures taken in cover-up from the start. Um, Fastow, even after arrest, once reportedly bragged that, well, we never had any memos or emails about anything that mattered, i.e., that mattered, the stuff they did, so what are they going to do? That was a big challenge, so how did they get to the top of that conspiracy? Uh, well, part of the answer is a guy named Andrew Weissman, who kind of made his mark as a mob prosecutor. Uh, dealing with omerta and dealing with situations where there might be blood on the floor and there might be a body and there might be a murder weapon, but nobody's talking because they're afraid of being the next body. And that's a pretty serious situation to investigate. And what Weissman did was use the same approach for the mob to Enron, which had rarely been done before. Um, so they indicted everyone across the board, even though they were told these cases may not hold up, and legally that might be true, given the evidence pattern, and some of them were overturned, by the way. But they went full bore. They didn't do white-collar coddling. They indicted people's spouses on what I would call relatively thin cases. You can make a paper case, for example, that a spouse in a joint tax form that involves financial crimes is is jointly on it. I mean, legally, you can make that case. Ethically, we talk about ethics here, you have to think about whether you think that person really knew or not. And if you're only using them to flip, is that really ethical? Or is that a, a type of 
bullying, for lack of a better word. Um, but he did that too. He did a lot of things. And he ultimately flipped one of the very top accounting executives at Enron, who then testified against all the other senior executives. And a theory of the case that looked like alighting a partial conspiracy with who knows where these cases are going to go turned into eyewitness, in-the-room testimony, going to the very top. And that, I think, is a very different theory of the case. I don't do predictions, but you know where Andrew Weissman works now. He works for Bob Mueller on the special counsel team. <laughs> and his, it's not supposed to be an applause line, <laughs> just a fact. Um, and the person overseeing the Enron task force for DOJ dealing with this very complex financial crime was FBI Director Bob Mueller. And he was assigned to, to run that. And he called Andrew and brought him over to the case. So it's interesting. Sometimes we look at things and it's like, is this just my theory from spending way too much time in law libraries, right? Which is <laughs> occupational hazard. Um, this isn't just a theory. This is a person there. Now, we don't know what he's going to find because you can't make people flip if there's nothing to flip. And if it's the first theory of the case, as I outlined, at the end of the day, you talk to Carter Page all you want and you figure out, looks like this person is what we call an unwitting asset. The non-legal term for that is idiot. Um, but, but in fairness to Mr. Page or any unwitting asset, that's not a crime. And I have, some of my best friends are idiots, so that's fine. The fourth theory of the case is, is also something we're all familiar with because it's a national trauma and it's embedded in our history and it's the most common comparison in the world, which is why we talk about travel gate and deflate gate and we put a gate on the end of everything and it's Watergate. And that's where you have a conspiracy exposed to the top with a smoking gun that actually brings down a president. Uh, I think there's less for me to say about this fourth theory of the case, because I think we all know it so well. Uh, I would only add a few things just on the, on the strictly legal side. Watergate had the most legal accountability in that lane, not because it was the worst thing a U.S. president had ever done. Uh, and historians can hold forums, and I'm sure some of them will be invited here someday, and they'll be more well-known than me, and that's fine. Uh, there are historians who uh, will decide or help us think through all the different acts over the course of history, and what judgment are you using, and what risk, and are we talking about the effect on humanity, are we talking about misjudgment, are we talking about crime? That's not why Watergate, ultimately, in my view, from studying it legally, was prosecuted. Prosecutors will tell you, prosecution is not about crime. It's about evidence. Most crimes are unsolved, tragically. Uh, and when you cover this beat, when you cover both sides of it, you, you see a lot of crimes where people have no solace and no answers, and certainly very little evidence. So we, we get so deep inside the particulars of the current news and all the reasons it's important, as I mentioned at the top, but if we just step back and remember, this is a criminal investigation, and most crimes are not solved, and certainly not solved 100% holistically. Watergate had this overwhelming direct evidence, 
And there were so many people involved from the start. And there were so many low-level criminals involved. And if you go back and look at, the again, the legal history, which I feel I can offer more on, you, you all can discuss you know, the Kennedy-Nixon debate, and was it really the sweat thing, or was it the radio thing, or we're on the radio right now, I don't know, am I sweating? Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have uh, some of the expertise and, and certainly the lived knowledge of it that many of you have, but I, my legal observation would be, you had the direct evidence, you had low-level involvement, right, which Enron didn't even have. It, the the frontline people selling the junk Ponzi deals in Enron didn't actually, weren't read in on what they were selling. And then you had a, a few very particular legal developments. One was that Judge Sirica handed down very lengthy sentences to the, the frontline low-level Watergate burglars that were far harsher than anything that would normally be called for. The widespread view being that Judge Sirica thought the break into the DNC didn't stop with these individuals. So he was acting a lot more like a prosecutor or America's concerned babysitter than a judge of applying a sentencing guideline. The investigations kept probing. You had flipping, which you have as well in the other earlier cases. You have a grand jury that returns a secret naming of Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator, and that sealed grand jury material was ultimately handed to the House Judiciary Committee. And then you have the taping system. So in this final fourth catastrophic theory of the case, is Watergate Watergate without the taping system? Is Watergate Watergate without a president who, as unlawful as he was accused of acting, in the crucible of the taping battle, as far as we know, only blurred the lines but didn't blow them up? I mean, some tape was deleted and they fought it to the Supreme Court but the unanimous lawful ruling of the Supreme Court still then was followed and resulted in all of this, these other outcomes. And in this model, if you look it up, there were ultimately 69 indictments, 48 convictions. The former president got a pardon, a lot of other people didn't. And so you have that confluence of events over what was about just under three years, illustrating that if you have everything in place, including the smoking gun evidence, you can end up in that final position. As a precedent, as a theory of the case, there are dark notes there because we have to reckon with the fact that as strong as our system is, there were accidental or relatively random reasons why that led to accountability in a way other situations didn't. I think the positive note is that if the system works, if prosecutors can do their job, if they are supported by a nonpartisan approach more or less in Congress, and if there's irrefutable evidence, if people put country above party, then that can still work. But I don't think it is a lesson that justice only resides in the fourth category. And even then, Watergate, something I've only studied and again didn't live through, seems like a national trauma you wouldn't wish on the country and you wouldn't wish on your political opponents for any reason other than irrefutable evidence and nonpartisan justice absolutely required it. And as a political matter, I don't think you can handicap anything 
what people recoiled from in certain ways in those days, a whole portion of the country rushes to now, um, which is not a reason not to be political. I close with where I began. The reason not to be political is that's not our constitutional system and not who we are. But as an also and a by the way, because lawyers love extra arguments, you probably can't game it the right way anyway, even if you thought you could and even if it was your call to make. So I present the four theories of the case to avoid prediction, but to hopefully inform some of the different ways this go. And the best thing I can say is not, it always works out. I set a timer. <laughs> you hear that? It's working. If I'm not good at anything else, I'm good at getting out when they say to get out by commercial. I know that thing. I know how to end. <laughs> um, is to say not that it all works out automatically, because I don't think we have that luxury, and I don't think America's ever been about that luxury, and I think, as you know from some of the prior speakers here, the people who have the least luxuries in America remind us of that. So it's not that we can be automatically positive or Pollyannish, but I don't think it's binary either. I think there are precedents that suggest accountability, even if it leaves you wondering whether the entire conspiracy, if there is a conspiracy, was uprooted. Um, and I think we have a long ways to go to find out exactly what happened, who's responsible, and hopefully how to prevent it. So with that, thank you, and I'll turn to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ari Melber. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our guest speaker today is Ari Melber, chief legal correspondent for MSNBC and host of the political news program, The Beat. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and the media sponsor of today's forum, the online news source, MinPost. We invite the radio audience to join us at Westminster Church for our next forum on Tuesday, November 28 at noon, when National Book Award nominee James Foreman, Jr. will discuss crime and punishment in black America. Our events are always free and open to all, and further information can be found at westminsterforum.org. And now, Mr. Melber, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present questions from the audience. First question has to do with uh, helping us understand the distinction between uh, Mr. Mueller's investigation, which you clearly uh, outlined as a legal matter, uh, and the congressional investigations. Do they lean in a more of a political direction? What's the difference between the, those? Well, I, I think Bob Mueller is there to in investigate espionage, which is the counterintelligence investigation he inherited, and crimes arising out of the 2016 election, which was the mandate he received from the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein because the Attorney General's recused. Uh, he has the full powers of a prosecutor, which are massive, uh, and a grand jury impaneled, which allows him to force uh, secret testimony that otherwise you would not get. So that's the main legal avenue. 
Everything else is more or less whatever the committees say they're doing. Uh, the, House, the House committee is obviously publicly completely broke down over, over they, don't even, they can't even tell you what they're doing. Um, and Devin Nunez has had a, a couple of public escapades that are, that are literally inexplicable uh, and par partially stepped back from the investigation, but not really. And it's not clear whether he wants to use the committee to make a case against the pursuit of collusion or conspiracy would be the criminal word by the Trump campaign and its network, or whether he just wants to dilute or soft pedal things, but he's clearly not. I don't even think he would say he is, you know, actively investigating the election part of it. Uh, and that's why there's so much attention on this so-called unmasking issue, which has to do with how uh, intelligence information is legally and security protected. Uh, and that's fine, that's also important. It's just not, obviously, the crux of Russian meddling. It's a focus on how the US government acts. Um, so that's the House side. The Senate side seems to me to be working potentially on a more bipartisan basis in public, but I mean, as someone who worked in the Senate and has observed these things, I'm not, I'm not under the view that that will continue forever. I think that's, they'll do that as long as they can which is, I think, reflects some positive goal of those two senators. And eventually, when it's time to issue reports or conclusions, uh, you'll see where the rubber hits the road. But at the end of the day, absent uh, a more technical oversight proceeding, something that involves accountability, these are free-ranging investigations. And we all know how congressional investigations work. They are not nonpartisan, and they're not offered as such. I mean, Bob Mueller is not meeting with another person who represents another view or another constituency and then hashing out some other solution, right? He's got experts and he's got judges who oversee that he has to, if he wants to knock down someone's door, like reportedly he did with Paul Manafort, a judge has to approve that. So there's a system, but it's by no means one of a political participation. And so I think that's just a fundamental difference. And when I say oversight, that to me is different. If you get to a stage where you have that process, that is, at least in theory, supposed to be less uh, political, but then that just depends on, on the, the members of Congress involved. In your fourth uh, theory uh, on the case, uh, you referred to the uh, smoking gun in Watergate, and uh, the, the number of leaks coming out of the White House today suggests that there may be, uh, at some point, a smoking gun uh, revealed by these leaks. Can you talk about, uh, about the leaks coming out of the White House and, and the possibility, in your mind, of a smoking gun emerging through those leaks? Well, I mean, I think this is such a leaky administration. <laughs> and, and the President of the United States is an individual who habitually and regularly misleads and lies as part of his political process. Uh, and so the Washington Post has found record-breaking over 1,300 misstatements in office thus far. This is also an individual who used to literally call reporters pretending to be his own spokesperson, right? <laughs> so when we hear these leaks, whatever they may be, I, th I think absent the evidence, my, my best tip as someone who processes them on a regular basis, as citizens you may process them when you're up for it and then other days say I'm taking a walk, is the excitement or impulse one might have about 
what you want to be true or what might strike you as good or bad news really shouldn't impact the known track record and veracity of the source. In this case, uh, if it's anonymous or if it's the president on the record, it's a, it's a relatively thin source. As for the evidence, I think when you look at what Bob Mueller's job is, right, it's to position this within federal crimes like election-related crimes or hacking-related crimes or conspiracy or if it involves interfering with the investigation, the crimes related to obstruction and tampering. So if, if that's what we're talking about, it's a question of does the evidence support the elements for those crimes, right? Hacking is where many of these discussions start because all the elements are satisfied. There has not been a benign explanation for the hacking. So that's a crime, and the question is who was involved, and was it only foreigners? Was it people here? So the notion of a smoking gun, I think, goes to which crime are we talking about? And if you have a recording system or surveillance or people flipping more than one person, those are the kind of things that get you, I, I would argue, according to the cases, further up the chain. What do you think the probability is that Mueller might be fired? And if he were fired, what would the consequences be? Well, this is very important because we are still a nation of laws. When the travel, first travel ban was instituted, uh, some people asked me, well, if it's blocked or if judges curtail it, what if President Trump doesn't follow the order, right? Well, one of the beautiful parts of our system, and again, I'm not Pollyannish about everything, but in that structure is the line agents at the border can't be personally fired by Donald Trump. They have a long-standing rule about following lawful orders. An order from the president is lawful unless otherwise contravened, so they will follow it. And the moment the court order comes in, they will stop following it. And if the president himself calls down to, you know, JFK airport and says, I want this done a different way, they have the lawful reason not to follow that because it is what's called an unlawful order. I say that by way of preamble because under the current rules providing for the special counsel, the president doesn't have personal authority to remove the special counsel, nor do DOJ management unless a certain set of measures are satisfied and they're stipulated under the rules and they are things like dereliction of duty, malfeasance, or firing for cause. And while on Twitter you can debate what those mean, in the United States today, there are precedents that judges will apply, right? So showing up at 9.01 is not grounds for being fired for cause. So if the DOJ tries to say that is the grounds and remove the special prosecutor or multiple prosecutors, there is still a system that can file an emergency petition with a judge. I wouldn't be surprised if in this scenario those are already written and ready to go and asking for a judge to reinstate. And then you go back to the travel ban scenario, which is whether it's lawful or not. So there is not a way for the president to personally lawfully remove Bob Mueller unless, and we're always open to evidence, right, unless there actually was some sort of cause or malfeasance that emerged. Uh, and likewise, the current role of attorney general because of the recusal is Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and he's made that pretty clear. So. It's a little different than the legal architecture that existed uh, during the Nixon massacre, although even then, a later court ruling said that prosecutor could have been reinstated. 
I think by that time, who remembers? I think by that time, Jorowski was back in and Congress was okay with that and so they, they kept it on pause, basically. A longer answer than, than this person probably wanted. <laughs> uh, we move on from uh, firings to pardonings. Uh, what do you think would happen if Trump decided to pardon Flynn and Manafort and Kushner and Page and others either before or after Mueller's report is released? Well, the pardon power is broad and is unitary. So it is the president's to use, and it is very broad. And as we've seen, there has been precedent for the lawful use of the pardon power, even pre-indictment, and even in the context of investigations into White House conduct. Uh, so my legal view of the precedent is you have wide latitude to lawfully use the pardon power to say that someone should not be tried or be punished. That is how it works. So the only sort of exception you have, which has never really been tested, is whether you can break the limits of the legitimate pardon power by doing something that is so brashly unconstitutional, illegal, or in furtherance of a high crime that you've managed to break what is a, a fairly broad unitary power. And so in the Weinberger example, the view at the time, and again, I say precedent because the fact that something happened doesn't mean it's always okay, but it is what judges often look to suggests that you can do those kind of pardons at that point in the investigation. So what's an example that would break it? Well, if you look at uh, Illinois, it's not that far from here, right? The, the power of a governor in the, in the system as executive to appoint the replacement for Senate is absolute and unitary, right? That's the governor's decision. And if the governor picks someone who is just objectionable to everyone or picks their family member even we've seen, that's still a unitary power. But when Governor Blagojevich at the time tried to auction off <laughs> the replacement of the senator, right? He took something that was unitary, that on paper was only him. He said, how do you mess that up? Um, and lost his governorship and landed in, in federal prison, right? Pat Fitzgerald prosecuted that case. So there are scenarios, again, if you look to precedent, where you can take something that's unitary. And so obviously I think that if, if a president, I'm not talking about this president, if a president tried to auction off pardons and say, well, this is an absolute power, I think the courts would have something to say about that, which would be at a minimum invalidating those pardons. I, I cannot imagine a public auction of federal pardons would stand. So at a minimum invalidating. And then the secondary question, which is one that is a difficult one, would be, well, given the special status of the president, is there some further sanction for that, right? Or is that in our system something that the Congress in this hypothetical has to deal with, right? And so in a scenario like that, if you say, well, I'm giving out pardons in exchange for crimes instead of money. I think that's worse than money. I mean, that's just uh, in exchange for obstruction. So again, I say this all in hypotheticals because we're only in a hypothetical place, but that, that would be my pardon analysis. Here's a question from someone who's listening in on uh, the radio and has sent us via Twitter a question. Is this, and it's is not this the going to be an insult yeah. because it's on Twitter? <laughs> Am I about to get a nickname? I think I know who this is. I think I know who's writing in. <laughs> He's free right now. So uh, the, the questioner asks, uh, tweets, 
really, can the average citizen separate legal from political in your distinction that you make? Is this not all about politics? Well, it's certainly not about politics to the prosecutors and the investigators. I mean, I would, I would question back, do I only get one tweet or how much time do I get? <laughs> I would question back to this person, if it's all about politics, why does this lifelong Republican, former Republican FBI director, Republican appointee, seem so intent on pursuing the case wherever it goes? which recently included Tony Podesta, who's a very senior Democratic official who apparently didn't register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act when helping Ukrainian political forces that were backed by the Kremlin, which was similar to what Paul Manafort was doing, and they both have to answer for that. I mean, it's kind of remarkable to me that in the face of a special prosecutor appointed by the Trump administration, based on the evidence available and the need for the Attorney General's recusal, and then led by a Republican, lifelong Republican official who, again, nonpartisan, but from Republican appointees, people are even asking this. Well, what are we asking about? Uh, Rod Rosenstein was picked by Trump to be a prosecutor, right? In the same way you might hopefully pick a doctor, and you might know about their partisanship, but it wouldn't be the only thing you know about. And then he goes and appoints Mueller, and someone's asking me, is the, what is the political conspiracy plot here, that these are... Republicans against Republicans? It doesn't, it doesn't merit a lot of analysis. As for the audience or the citizenry, I think it's well established that some people are so blinded by partisanship that they don't want to look at facts or information. If you're in this room and you're talking to your fellow citizens and you're listening to different experts, hopefully maybe that's not you, but I'm sure you know people like that. But that's, that's neither here nor there in the sense of that's, that happens but is not our, our goal. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal recently, Peter Berkowitz, a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, alleges that Mueller and Comey have conducted much more, quote, tenacious and nearly unconstrained, quote, investigations of Republicans than of Democrats. Do you agree? Well, I don't think the record reflects that. I mean, again, one of the, I guess one of the benefits I have is covering the DOJ and the FBI. You see all the cases, and the truth is the vast majority of cases aren't about politicians. Uh, I covered, I mean, Preet Bharara was, was the federal prosecutor in New York, and I interviewed him while he was in that post, and it was a few weeks after he'd indicted uh, the top Democrat in the New York legislature, uh, Shelley Silver, who in, that, in, in the New York state was a very big figure and been a Democrat for power player for 30 years. But it turned out he was skimming and had all this bribery, uh, all these bribery allegations. So he got indicted. I mean, I just don't think what happens is that they spend most of their time on politicians. I think we know from the caseload they spend most of their time on conspiracy, on Medicare fraud, on some federal violent crimes. Used to be more drug trafficking. Some of that has tapered off. It's a whole, it's a whole spread. Um, and then what we do is focus on a couple of the cases that pop up and then analyze those, which, again, it makes sense for the, for the reasons I, I think I mentioned at the top. But, no, I don't think there's evidence that, whether it's Preet or Comey, Comey previously had that same post as uh, top federal prosecutor in New York, Southern District of New York. A lot of the powerful kind of big-picture prosecutors come out of there. 
partly because it's a combination of national security and finance cases if you, if you have New York jurisdiction. Uh, Mary Jo White as well, who went on to run the SEC. I don't think Comey's time, if you look at SDNY, if you look at FBI, I don't think there's that partisan thing. I do think Jim Comey became very enamored with the idea that all problems must be addressed by Jim Comey. And I don't think that was a partisan blinkering. I think it was his view that he was, if anything, the least partisan. And so he could do what an Obama attorney general could not. And I, I think, like so many of our fatal flaws, that one came from him thinking he could do something good and then ended up being really bad. Can the Mueller investigation force Trump to release his tax returns? And if so, do you think that will happen? Well, you know, we've spoken to former prosecutors and former prosecutors in the tax division who state that at this point, Mueller would almost certainly have them based on the progress of the investigation. So he has them. Uh, it would not be appropriate in the normal course for them to be released as part of an investigation. So if the question is, will we see them because he has them, I think the short answer is probably not. Uh, and tax records like medical records are highly protected for a variety of good reasons. And so it's actually a crime to even leak them now. There was the leak of one of Donald Trump's years, a year that looked more favorable to him, at least from an income perspective. Um, and you can release your own tax returns. Present, other presidential candidates have always done it. He was the first in a while not to. Uh, but I, I think Mueller probably has them. I think that is unlikely to lead to their public release. I think as a country, if we want to have a rule about release of greater records, we have to mandate it under federal law. There are FEC rules about money that are non-negotiable, meaning if you, don't, if you don't follow them, you can't even be a candidate. You can't even get your name on the ballot. And I think the, the where we are as a country, I've always, I mean, as a policy matter, I, it would seem to me it would make sense to have more of those restrictions both on taxes and medical. I mean, we have this sort of genteel, older attitude about some of the medical stuff. The truth is, if you have the codes, maybe there should be mandated release of more of the records. I just think it's in our public interest. What about the culpability of social networks like Facebook or, or Twitter or others for spreading misinformation and, and actually facilitating or enabling some of the uh, collusion we've talked about or the, the impact on elections? I think it's a great question. I think the interesting thing with companies like Facebook and Google is if they want to sell you something, they will tell you they do the best micro-targeting algorithm. They know everything about everything. And if they don't want to be regulated, suddenly they don't really know how anything works and they don't know where the fake news came from. And analogies are always dangerous because people don't treat them as analogies. If I say, this is like a gun, you say, are you saying Facebook is a gun? No, no, it's like a gun. And by, and by that analogy, the gun control argument was always, well, guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? And by analogy, not with the same deadly scope, the Facebook's gearing up for a hearing uh, next week saying, well, Facebook doesn't distort elections, the Russians do, right? And as with the gun policy debate, it's probably both, right? You, no one's denying the centrality of the gun in gun control. The question is, apart from the gun, does it make sense to restrict how the guns are made and distributed and who gets them. And with Facebook, they don't want to be in the responsibility business. They, they want to be a pipe. 
and they want to let the content flow. And they're not the first, by the way, to single them out. They're not the first company to, to grapple with this. Um, in, there was a, in the area of, say, child pornography, which is especially objectionable material, which can, in theory, relate to free speech arguments, but in practice also relates to content that can involve further inducement of the subjugation or attacks on children. So it's something people feel very understandably strong about. In the very early period of internet regulation, Google said, well, well our algorithm's really special. We can't really disappear that stuff because we don't want to go down that road because today it'll be this thing that we all agree is bad and tomorrow it'll be something else. And they held that argument for like an hour. And then it became very clear that wasn't going to work. And now they do disappear that content. And it is true. I mean, I practice First Amendment law. It is true that you have to be careful and you don't want the government coming in and just disappearing everything willy-nilly. But slippery slope arguments can always be excessive. So I would say there's a lot more for Facebook when it comes to the rules. And I'm getting, I'm getting the rap. You're getting the signal, yeah. Thank you, Ari Melbourne. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.